village. What can you say about the village? What can you say about Circleville, Ohio, for that matter? It's here. And out, outside these doors, you can feel freedom, truth, and the good life flowing like yesterday's Fleischmann's yeast. <laughs> Down to the sea. <laughs> By the way, speaking of, of, of Fleischmann's yeast, how many of you grew up in the period when on the bottom of the comic strips, this was before the little cutie pie, artsy crafty comic strips, you know, like peanuts and that. This is what, you know, there were, there were, there were, the artsy crafty crew had not entered the field yet. They were still doing finger painting and stuff. And under the comic strips, there would be this thing about Fleischmann's yeast. Do you remember that? That if you got skin trouble, they didn't put it that way. They say, if you have a social problem with your skin, kids, a cake of Fleischmann's yeast three times a day will make you, not only if you're a chick, it'll make you the prom queen. If you're a male, you'll be the top halfback in the league. And they used to have these little strips, you know, would show this little skinny kid with little things, you know. And it shows all the kids dancing. They're all dancing, and you see the, the, you see the streamers hanging. And you see these two chicks, and one says to the other, you know, Johnny is a very good-looking boy. If only someone would tell him about his skin. And the other says, oh, ugh. I can't stand looking at him. Ugh. Why doesn't someone send him to his friendly neighborhood grocer? And here is Johnny hiding behind a potted palm, hearing this. You, see. you remember that scene? Don't you remember that? And the next, the next scene, it shows him, you know, and here's that friendly neighborhood grocer with the white coat, you know, and he some, somehow looks like a doctor or something, see? And he's cutting the salami. And, 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 and he says, why, yes, Johnny, Fleischmann's yeast, eaten three times a day after meals, will clear up those difficult skin problems. Now, what was that, Mrs. Schlidlap? And it shows this kid then at home looking in the mirror. And it says, three days later. And here he is. He's bigger, you know. And you can see he can block better. And he can, he's shiftier and everything. And his skin is... And, and he's looking in the mirror and he says, gee, I wonder if Joanne will go with me to the senior prom now. And, of course, we see in the next scene, here is Joanne saying, Dear Charlie, I'm so pleased you asked me, and I'm so, so glad you talked to our friendly neighborhood grocer. And you see them at the prom, and then it says, On the way home, you see the big moonlight there, and they're in the front seat of the convertible, and underneath it, he's got his arm around her, you know, Joanne, and she's snuggling up, and there's a little balloon over him. And it says... Gee whiz, and I owe it all to Fleischmann's yeast. <laughs> well, of course, we had an idea what would happen on our way home, see? And every last one of us thought, you know, it's Fleischmann's yeast. That's why I haven't been making a seat. And I can remember going in and asking Mr. Mattingly, <laughs> our friendly neighborhood grocer, Mr. Mattingly, I want three cakes of Fleischmann's yeast. <laughs> Mattingly turns around with a lot of those little fat ladies from the neighborhood in there, and he says, Oh, three cakes of Fleischmann's yeast, huh? 
and he goes back to the ice box. You know, everybody'd seen this thing. I says, "My mother bakes bread." <laughs> and I had just ordered, you know, a loaf of silver cup. It's that my mother bakes bread at home. It's her hobby, you know. The three cakes of Fleischmann's yeast. And he gives it to me. He says, "That's all right. Esther Jane was just in." Well, you know, it's 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 all the whole the whole problem of embarrassment is with us all the time. And Marty over here asked me about Miss M. L. Scott and the swimming class. Well, I can only tell you this: that on quiet nights, maybe three, four o'clock in the morning, those fitful nights when you're twisting and turning in the New York heat. And far off in the distance, you can hear the sound of those insane, eternal sirens that are blowing here in town all the time. You know, Ooh. have you heard that kind that goes? Whoop, 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 whoop. The hounds of hell are barking. Have you heard that horn? That's a scary one. People hide, boy, when they hear that one. For those of you who don't live in New York, I'll have to explain to you. They got a certain kind of horn that only blows at four in the morning here. I don't know what they're after. And I don't know what kind of car it's on, but it goes whoop, 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 whoop. And then it goes off into the distance. Whoop, 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 whoop. And you lay there. The next time it's going to... Have you ever had that feeling of hearing the sirens out there? And they come closer and closer and closer. They stop. You get up in the darkness. They finally come. <laughs> oh wow! Well, that's a New York phenomenon, you know. And at three and four o'clock in the morning, when I'm lying there in the dark, twisting and turning, and I can hear those sirens, and I can hear the screams of the wounded, and New York, the summer festival, is swinging out there. <laughs> oh yeah, New York is a summer fist fight, believe me. And I can hear it going on out there like some gigantic, fantastic whirlpool. How many of you remember a story by Edgar Allan Poe called the Maelstrom? Well, the story of the Maelstrom roughly is this: that there was a place in the sea that had a fantastic whirlpool, a maelstrom, and this maelstrom sucked entire ships. No one had ever survived the maelstrom. That once you were caught in the maelstrom, it just sucks you down. Woo, woo, woo. And the and the the idea was, and the theory, that down in the maelstrom, way down near the bottom of the ocean, circling endlessly, forever and ever and ever, are the bodies of the seamen, the ships, the lost flotsam and jetsam of existence, had been sucked down there. And one night. This seaman, his ship caught in the maelstrom, it all flashes before his mind. You remember that? We're going down, boom, boom, boom. Down he goes, and he finds himself swirling, swirling, and all the men around him are fighting the maelstrom. And he sees them going past, and he's down there, and suddenly he just says, "Let go, just let go," and he floats round and round, and there were crates. Ancient war vessels, old battles swirling past them, and they were all fighting, except him. 
And then all of a sudden he found himself spinning over and over and over. And the maelstrom spat him out and he flew out and onto the shore. And there he lay. He had escaped the maelstrom merely by just letting it happen, not fighting. Well, that's the sensation you got of living here in New York City. It's a maelstrom. Some guys fight it and walk around with signs. Shame! How long? For shame! And the whirlpool and the ancient vessels are going past them. The old grapefruit of forgotten cargo. And then there are other guys just floating. They're going around and just swinging with it. Well, oh, there's a lesson in it for us all. I'm sorry. So I'm lying there in a sack about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I can hear the sound of the sirens going and the wounded and the dying and the, and the, the, the whole scene, you know, when it's hot. You know how New York gets when it's hot. Wow. There is more life in this town in one square foot than I would say in 17 representative states of the Union, all put together. It teems with life. It's in the air. I would never leave New York in the summertime because of that fantastic feeling of being amid the life, where it is, I mean, what it is, it's dangerous. Oh, life is always dangerous, I'm sorry, you know. Trees never bite you. Oh, yeah, this is not real life. Well, I'm lying there at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I can hear the sound of those sirens. I can hear New York life going on <laughs> up there. And, and I, you know, it's just, just there, and it is in those moments when the urbanite comes face to face with his own deep fears, his own feelings of imminent disaster. You know, the beautiful thing about living in urban life is that you can pretend everything's okay because the buildings are still going up, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, urban. They, 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 the leaves don't change in the city. You know, the guy living out there somewhere in the fastnesses of Maine, he sees the leaves change. He knows time has gone on. He sees them get green again. He sees the worms come out, and he sees them die. He sees the beavers build the dam, and then they're trapped. He sees all this, you see. So he comes away from life and knowing about some. But let me tell you, if you walk every day past the Time Life building, you know, with those big stainless steel flagpole stand. Have you ever had the feeling if you want to go out there and start hitting them with hammers and see what key they're tuned in? Well, I want to tell you, one midnight, maybe two, three in the morning, three of my friends, myself, were walking past, and we stopped in front of the Time Life building right there on 6th Avenue. This giant glass monolith rising. And I walk over to one and I go, doing, and it goes, woing, 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 woing. what a sense of power, you know? Somehow you're hitting the whole loose empire, you know? It goes, doing, woing, 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 and it echoes all the way up Sixth Avenue and all the way down to the park, you know? And my friend down in the end, he goes, doing, woing, 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 woing. well, we got to playing the greatest xylophone solo. We worked out how dry I am. Doing, 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 doing. And you hold it up and you can change the tune. Well, a guy came out of the Time Life building. He says, get out of here, you nuts. 
boing, boing, boing. <laughs> the aluminum flagpoles. <laughs> well, that's the kind of city New York is, you know. Nobody ever thinks living in, in McCook, Illinois, that what they ought to do is to go down and load up the French 75 that's on the courthouse lawn and just shoot it, you know, boom. <laughs> You ever had that feeling when you walk past these cannons, you'd like to blow them up, you know, shoot them? Well, New York breeds in the urbanite a genuine sense of infallibility. Oh, yes, it does. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. Not you, because you're a suburbanite. <laughs> no, the suburbanite is not in the same class with the urbanite. The suburbanite keeps coming. He doesn't belong in the city. He thinks he does. He's a visitor. He's truly a visitor. You have to live in the city. You have to prowl it at 3 o'clock in the morning with no escape. You're not going back to Teaneck or New Milford, you know. <laughs> this is yours. This is your, this is your little mess of pottage, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it's just that way, honey. I'd like to tell you no because you come every day and go to the office. You're a New Yorker. You're not. E.B. White, writing in The New Yorker, is not a New Yorker. None of the people I read in The New Yorker write about New York. They always write about how it feels to live in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and you used to once live in New York when you were 22 in 1931, when Edna St. Vincent Millay was still here. And that, you know, that scene. Oh, no, New York is exciting. And if you live in it, you know it. And so at 3 o'clock in the morning, this is the moment of decision for the true urbanite. He hears the sound of those whistles out there. He remembers five guys he walked past in the subway today just laying there. You know those guys you constantly see next to the coin exchange thing there where you get the subway tokens? Just laying there, all twisted. You, know, you walk past him, you say, ah, bum, drunk. <laughs> you know, you, you, you never quite can explain why he's wearing pearl gray spats. You know, and he's wearing a Hamburg hat and his briefcase is next to him, which is a bomb, drunken bomb. You know, it, it, you don't want to be involved. You know, that's New York. So you sit there and you live in this thing, you know. And after a while, you recognize the fact you are just a little tiny bit of... You know, there's a great little animal that lives in the sea that the whale exists off of. It's called plankton. Plankton is what the whale eats. Can you imagine the whale lives off microscopic animals that float in a giant sea? And this whale has an enormous strainer. I'm telling you the truth. And the whale comes along and opens his mouth and just goes... <sighs> Down they go. 18 million city dwellers. Yeah, plankton. You know, they got no name, nothing. They just go down, and the whale just moves on. And the whale is nine million miles long. Isn't it amazing? It's fantastic. Most people think whales eat sharks or something. You know, I'm sorry to eat. They eat plankton. And I remember as a kid reading about plankton. It said plankton are microscopic creatures that sometimes glow in the dark. How like many of us. In fact, I can see some glows over Netflix now, right now, by the bar. Watch carefully. And it says the plankton are completely, really, in the basic sense, unknown. Biologists don't know where they spawn. They don't know whether they migrate. 
They don't know what they do. They're just out there in the darkness off Jones Beach. Yeah, when you're swimming, you're swimming through mountains of them. Really, they're just all... And they don't... Hey, hey, have you ever tried to figure out what a plankton thinks of you? You know, you're going past. What are you to a plankton? Well, there I am at 3 o'clock in the morning. The sound of the sirens everywhere. I'm a New Yorker, remember. The heat is coming in. You know, they sell a device right now for New Yorkers. It's not sold to guys in Maine that reproduces the sound artificially of an air conditioning unit. That's true for guys that don't have air conditioning but get nervous when they're away from that sound, you know. Oh, yeah, most of us live in it. And believe me, you can buy a little unit that just goes... And you just lay there and it keeps your company, you know. This is New York life. Oh, yeah, and it turns off, you know, makes the sound of bad air conditioning units. You lay there and wait. And then it goes. Oh, yeah, we're living in parlous times, believe me. And so at 3 o'clock in the morning, some nights I wake up and unaccountably, those fantastic moments of direct confrontation with fear suddenly come out, inchoate, without form, just fear. You know what? You know what the psychological term free-floating fear is? Isn't that a great term? Free-floating fear. That's fear that has no focal point. It's not fear of traffic. Fear of the atom bomb. Fear of Charlie. Fear of Fred. Fear of getting fired. Those are all directed. Free-floating fear is just a cloud. You know, it's just a cloud of fear, that's all. And it just goes boiling and bubbling, you know. A little lightning comes out once in a while. And everybody living in the urban life has a little cloud of free-floating fear above him. Yes. The guy out in the country knows what he's afraid of. The locusts. You know, he's afraid of the Baptist church. He's afraid of the tax collector. But in New York, it just floats. Well, at 3 o'clock in the morning, it takes strange forms. Well, once about six weeks ago, that's why M.L. Scott came out, Marty. About 3 o'clock in the morning, it suddenly came out, and I remembered that moment had nothing to do with nostalgia. It was a sick, ooh, you know, ooh, that terrible thing. Well, I was assigned as a freshman to Swimming One, taught by Miss M.L. Scott. You know, and I'm just a kid. I get my, my, my registration card. I, you know, I, this is a big thing. It's like General Motors. It's like if one day you bought a Chevy and it came with nine wheels. You'd say, well, you know. GM bills them like that, and that's it, you know. Yeah, so it said, Miss M.L. Scott. Well, the time came for my class. And, of course, the rumor had always been when I'm in high school that swimming is the big thing. You know, they have swimming. They actually have credits for swimming. Swimming was the thing we did at the beach. It was a big, you know, it was a fun thing. It's hard to believe that some people get paid for that kind of stuff, you know, get credits and graduate in swimming and golf. So... The first thing I did as a, as a grade school kid was apply for swimming. And so here it is. I'm going to my first swimming class. It's the first day. And it was down in the basement. You know how those swimming, those school swimming 
pools are always down in the basement and there's tiles and you can smell them. You know that smell? You can smell them for all up and down the hall on the bottom. That, that, that funny water, old tennis shoe, uh, you know that strange smell of, uh, you know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard to put it into words. It's a swimming pool smell from a distance. And it's exciting. It really is because we have a terrible urge to return to the sea, you know. Oh, yeah, I could get, I could tie it all together, honey. You're dealing with a big man here. <laughs> so, so, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, man always goes down to the sea. There's no question about it. And so there I am down in the basement there with all these people going past, and I'm heading for swimming, Miss M.L. Scott. And it says pool two. Well, there's pool one, and I go past pool one. I come to pool two. There's the doorway. Some kids are going in. You know, oh, they're just kids. And I go in with the kids. And I hear, ah! I walk right into, the, right into the dressing room, and it's the girls' pool. I never knew they swum naked. I'm serious. Why was I assigned? My name starts with a J, you know, friends. J-E-A-N. And I walk into the girls' pool, and here are all these chicks, millions of girls, you know. There is nothing that is more embarrassing than a little short, fat male type who looks like a bowling ball to be mistaken for a chick. I mean, you know, and I walk in there, and I got my card, and all the girls, and, woo! And, they're running, and they've got these little gray swim things out, you know. Half of the girls are undressed. And, and this chick, oh boy, this big fat lady, you know the gym teacher type with the short hair, you know, this, you know, the, the little mustache. She was a very early, she was a very early Tipperillo smoker, and she was well ahead of her time, you know. And Miss M. L. comes after me like, get him, get him. You see, because it was it, apparently in this high school, there was always a gag among all the kids. One day, I'm going to go into the girls' dressing room, you know, and here is the little snot that did it. She says, "Get him, get him!" And they put the B on me, and she takes me in her office. She says, "All right, what are you up to?" I, she says, "I've known your type." You know, and I remember the headlines from the Tribune, you know, Attacker slays seven with axe. In park, sex mad maniac. Ron Rampage on South Side. And she looks at me, she says, I've known your type. Her beard's flicking, you know. At that point, I hadn't known her type yet, but... Whew. Remind me to tell you about that date sometime. You know, she... Have you ever dated somebody who, who discusses various sh shaving creams with you? That's a, that's a, <laughs> what a feeling. <laughs> no, honestly, I actually had that happen. <laughs> so she says, you use menin, don't you? And I said, yes, it wows the ladies. She says, well, I use it too, for the same reason. You'll have to explain that to her when you get home. That's a <laughs> or explain it to him when you get home. I don't... So, so I, 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 I go into this swimming pool, and I am there, and in her office, 
You know how gym teachers and swimming teachers are up? They always have a little metal desk with a cup up here somewhere, you know, and a picture of the class swimming team. Dynamic, and there's a smell of jock straps. Uh, yeah, it just sort of hangs over. It's, it's a real, it's, all, it's, a, it's a very healthy smell. And so I'm standing in there, and she says, go to see Mr. Rupp. She says, report to Mr. Rupp, and you tell him that you tried to crash the girls' swimming class. She says, I won't do you any good to lie, because I'm calling him up on the phone right now. And I can hear the phone being picked up. I can hear behind her closed door, and give it to him good. I don't know who Mr. Rupp is. I've been in school eight minutes. I'm a freshman. And the only thing I know is to go out on the front steps down to the, you know, that leads out to the street leading to home, is to go out on the front steps and cry. I'm telling you exactly. I went out and I stood on the steps. I didn't know what to do. I just stood there. And I, everything is quiet. You know that terrible feeling of school is in and you're out? <laughs> and you can hear that, that kind of hum and that buzz, that strange thing. And I'm standing out on the steps and I turn around and I go back up. You know, I can't just go home and say, you know, that caught me in a girl's swimming pool, my. <laughs> you know, first day of school, I got my tie on and everything. So I go back up the steps, and there's a monitor. You know that monitor bit where a kid sit there, there's a, there's a certain number of snots that make it already, you know? And they sit there like this with a, some kind of badge monitor. So, oh, hey, let me see your, let me see your admit. <laughs> got no admit, admin. What's this? I'm supposed to see Mr. Rupp. Oh. He's down there, second, after the, after the hallway, going down past the stairs, number 102. The kid recognized that I was being sent to, absolutely being sent to see the school Eichmann. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's always a hatchet man in every school. He's the guy under the principal, you know, who just sits in there like a spider and waits. Well, ten minutes later, I get up the courage to go in, and I'm standing in there in front of Mr. Ruff. And he says, are you Gene Shepard? And I can see the guy. He looks like Lewis Stone. He is busting up. He says, are you Gene Shepard? And I said, yes. He said, well, <laughs> you were in the girls' swimming class, weren't you? I said, yes, yes. Yes, yes. He said, how did you get in? <laughs> Obviously, for years, he'd been walking past that door, you know. <laughs> well, at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning, these indescribable, unbelievable, terrible, embarrassing things come crowding back on all of us. You all got at least five. Now, what you do when you grow up is you learn techniques to pretend like none of this jazz ever happened to you. That you never were a failure. That it never happened to you. This is called maturity, by the way. And you get suits, and you learn, you know, you, you develop little things like cocktail party stances. You know that stance at a cocktail party? You know that sort of snotty look of a guy who doesn't even mess with the peanuts, you know? Just stands over there, yes, of course. 
You are a close intimate of Jules Pfeiffer. You know, that you and Edward Albee often talk it over. You just, you never say it, you just sort of stand and look like it, and you walk around. And all the while, deep down inside you is that boiling mass of those things. The M.L. Scotts, the Mr. Rucks, the Mr. Pittengers. Have you ever wondered, as you look at these people sitting here with the black shades on, the guys with the rimless glasses, the guys with the wild-looking chicks, the guys with the jaguars, what's deep down inside? That little lurking creature with the red-rimmed eyes who has seen it. Well, one time, somebody brought up the signal corps here. I never in my life saw an example of mass embarrassment, mass embarrassment in the middle of total, what should have been grandeur in my entire born days than a thing that happened at Fort Monmouth. Now, this is not an army story, so don't get bored, chicks. It is something else. Now, every one of us has watched combat. You've watched 12 o'clock high. You've watched command decision. You've watched Rip Torn take pillboxes in Korea. You've heard him sing, Off we go into the wild blue yonder, rising high into the sky. You've all heard those great, stirring, soul-ringing things that denote glamour and people that are involved in important things. That smallest private in the Air Corps feels a funny thing when they sing, Off we go into the wild blue yonder. This guy's a little company clerk, you know? <laughs> but somehow he is himself wrestling with Baron von Richthofen, you know? High in the skies over no man's land, his twin Lewis guns roaring out. Off we go, and he's in a B-17, he's in a B-29. Well, have you ever heard him sing about the Signal Corps? <laughs> I want to ask you, how do you think it feels to be in the Signal Corps? And way off at the other end of the field where you're sent, you can hear the Air Corps guys. 50,000 of them singing, off we go into the wild blue yonder. And then there's a song called, The Infantry, The Infantry, Forever the Blue and the Infantry. Yeah, they sing about the infantry. And then there's these guys sing, The caissons, they're rolling along. It's the artillery. We got nothing to sing. No song. And so when a group of Signal Corps soldiers are being marched from one place to the other, Somebody always hollers, a CO hollers, all right, you guys, come on, let's sing it out now. Let's sing it out. Up, two, three, four, up, two, three, the Air Corps song. And then we all sing, off we go. We sing somebody else's school song. How would you like to be in a school that's so low, so defeated, so inconsequential that you've got to sing the other school's songs? I mean, seriously, that's the kind of thing it is to be in a Signal Corps. I have never once seen a Signal Corps guy even mentioned in a movie. And, you know, I know all the terrible things they go through. Have you ever seen the scene where Ben Johnson is in the shell hole with the phone? You know, and he goes, gah, 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 gah. Hey, hey, they're coming over. They're coming at us. Hey, help. And he's calling Gregory Peck, who's the... 
You know, Peck is the colonel in the shell hole over here, and he says, all right, I'll, I'll, he's on the phone. Did you ever think about the guy that laid the wire? There was one guy that crawled between them holes up on the top with a little reel of wire on his head. He's got no song. He's crawling. And, yeah, he's crawling. You know, here's Gregory Peck and here's Van Johnson. They're infantry captains and lieutenants. Here's a signal corps T-5. And the shot and shells going by. Donnie goes into the thing. And they hurry up, hurry it up. They're coming. i got to get the connection through. All right, all right. Where's the tape? Give me the tape. He's putting the tape. And they're lobbing grenades at him and mortars. And then Gregory Peck grabs it and says, All right, get out of the way, will you, you lout? Get out of the way. That's the signal corps. Well, I am in the Signal Corps, and by the way, they had about 87% casualties, unsung, un unheralded. And at Fort Monmouth, it seemed that one day it had seeped through to upper echelons that the Signal Corps needed a song. That's the one thing we needed. Well, I don't know whether you know anything about the mind of a soldier who is out, who really isn't part of any of the glamour groups. He becomes a dynamic put-down artist. He stands there, you know, and he sees the Air Corps marching past. Him. Ah, they're gonna fly, boys. <laughs> he watches them go by, you know. They got Gregory Peck leading them, and they're gonna fly out over there, and they got the jazzy uniforms and the patches. And then all of a sudden, he sees over here, he sees a group of paratroopers from the infantry. You know that snotty bunch with the boots and all that stuff with the blue braid? They got big patches. These guys walk past. Oh, look at them louts. Oh, boy. Nothing but a bunch of fist-fighting louts. And there you stand with your pliers. And you got a soldering gun over here. And you got a couple of tube testers in back. That's the signal corps. That wherever the infantry gets blown up, there are three guys fixing a radio set. Wherever the Air Corps flies out over Germany, there's nine signal corps guys hanging on the bottom of the B-29 trying to fix it, you know. Over they go. Nobody sings. Well, this big day came. I'm telling you, this, this, this is a historic moment in the signal corps. And the last time I did this, told this story on the air, I got a very embarrassing reply. I got a letter from the person involved. It actually happened. So there was a hot summer day. A lot of guys had come back from overseas. The war was now two years gone, and almost every one of us had nine friends that had been killed somewhere in Africa. Half of us had been there and gone. Don't worry about it. The station will break itself. Half of us had been there and gone. It's doing very good. Have you heard our morning programming? So I, I had, we're all standing there on a hot summer day. And this camp is stretching endlessly around us. And there's a certain ennui that guys get who are really part of it. You know, they, they've been there. They know it. These are not rookies. These are not recruits. These are guys who have been in the Army maybe three years, and they're all standing. 
We are called to a battalion formation. And standing up on the stand out there is the major. And the major looks down, and this guy was one of these guys, as a matter of fact, he was one of the people who was at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> he had ribbons like so, you know. One arm didn't work so good from the shell that he picked up somewhere, and ought to. He was one of those majors, a true combat soldier. And by the way, they're nothing at all like you see them in movies about it. They're nothing at all like uh, Dr. Strangelove. Not a bit of this. Oh, no. Here's a guy. He's got his hat pulled down. He's a little short, squat man. And he's the major. He walks around up there in the stand. Men! Eddie's over there in Company C! This guy had been made immediately a captain the day the first bombs fell on Pearl Harbor. He had been a first sergeant for nine years. And if you know anything about the regular army, you know what that's like. So here he was, a real soldier. Men! Your duty, corporals! I'm going to pass out a mimeograph sheet. It is the new signal cause song. And you could see he's embarrassed. <laughs> he's looking real embarrassed. And we're all standing down there. We can't believe it. We got a signal corps song. And sure enough, the corporals are running around giving us little pieces of paper. And we're standing there with this mimeograph thing that's got notes on it. And it says... The signal corps goes rolling along. <laughs> the signal corps goes rolling along into the wild blue yonder. <laughs> well, we're all standing with the sheep, and Abramowitz, who was the major, says, I want all you guys to take this back to the barracks. I want you to memorize the words. We are going to have a regimental formation in exactly two hours. I want you to know the words. And any of you guys that can play musical instruments in the barracks, I want you to hum it to them if you can. All right, dismiss the men. Here we are. We got a song. Well, we go back to the barracks and we sit on our bunks and up near the front, some guy with a harmonica is trying to pick it out. It goes, it's one of these vague march. It's looking at this thing. Signal call. And guess who had written it? The wife of the commanding general of the signal corps. Well, you know, the wife of a general is a general. <laughs> There's no question about it. And there it was, and I could just see this little old lady, the petty point type, who prides herself on singing things like, There is a pansy in my garden. There is a peri in my wood. And she's known as the musical member of the family, and she's decided to do something about the signal corps. Well, two hours later, I can't describe it to you. 
You just have to live through it. There we were assembled on the main parade ground at Monmouth, all of us in Class A's. It was to be the great launching of an anthem that was going to be heard around the world. We were going to march with the Air Corps now. We all stood there. And way down at the end is the Signal Corps band, under the direction of, by the way, a very famous conductor, serious classical conductor, who today, when you mention this to him, his ears get red. Because <laughs> yeah, I did. I mentioned to him. And there, way down at the end, is the Signal Corps band, and there's a fantastic panoply of military might. Over here is the Mess Kit Repair Battalion. Over here... <laughs> is the Radar Scope Oscillator Alignment Department. We're all lined up there, you know. We got our Class A's on. And boy, we're sharp. You know, guys got their ribbons, guys with wound stripes, guys with overseas stripes. We're all standing there. And you hear all the way down at the end, you hear this sound coming. The band is playing the entrance of the commanding general. There's a certain set of flourishes they play when the head man arrived. There coming down in a great big green command car is the general. And he is sitting real low in his seat. And guess who is sitting next to him with a flowered hat, with a flowered dress, this nice lady, you know, she looked like everybody's mother. <laughs> and the car comes down, they go up on the reviewing stand, way down at the end, and there they stand. The lieutenant general, he's with a major general, he's with a man from the war department. They sent a guy down who represented one of the cabinet members, and we stood. And our CO is looking us right in the eye. The look says, any one of you that cracks a smile is going to get his neck busted personally by me. <laughs> All right, Eddie's parade. Stance. Eddie's. We're standing. A hut. And the band starts to play the introductory notes. <laughs> He raises his hand way up on the stand and says, one, two, three, and all of us start singing. <laughs> Off we go with our oscilloscope set ready, marching round with our soldering irons. Off we go. And we're singing this thing, and it began to get quieter and quieter. You know that feeling of being in a high school auditorium and everybody is singing and it just slow. You know the, the community sing that doesn't work? <laughs> and one guy is hollering out real loud, Well, we go and the signal car forever. The signal car, the signal car will always be our signal car. And, all and the drums are going. And it just fell right in the middle like a gigantic overripe watermelon that was beginning to smell. And the sun is hanging up in the sky there, and all those uniforms are beginning to wilt, and we're singing and singing and singing. It finally ends. The song went on longer than Beethoven's Ninth. I'm sorry. 
And then the whistles blew. The battalion major said, Attention! Dismiss your men. And our captain says, Attention! Company dismissed. And you know, soldiers are funny. They're all for the put-down. It was a very interesting thing. We're walking back to our barracks, and everybody's embarrassed. For once, nobody makes the smart crack. They're all just sort of walking back. It, you know, yeah, it was kind of nice song, Chuck. Yeah. Signal Corps forever. Signal Corps. It's a catchy tune. How's it go now? Let's see. Each one of us wearing our little army service patches. And we get back in the barracks and just sit. And I'm telling you, way off in the distance, we hear on the drill field a bunch of guys going to work. Off we go into the wild blue yonder, hiding high into the sky. And from that day to this, I have never again heard the Army Signal Corps song. <laughs> well, I told this story on the air, and I got a letter from one of the principals. And it was, it, was, it, was, it was a very interesting letter because the letter said that this was one of the great tragedies of their life and enclosed three original copies of the sheet music. It said she would appreciate it if you would sing it on your program. A song plugger was at work. Well, I'll tell you that when you, when you get into... Oh, speaking of embarrassment, this is WOR, AM at FM, New York. And we'll be here until they take us away. I want to tell you one more story about embarrassment. This is all dedicated to all the kids who know when they go back to school. There's a lot of kids that are looking forward to it. And there are a lot of kids that know that, that the trap is ahead. And there are others who suspect it. What we have with us here tonight... A man who has experienced embarrassment above and beyond the call of civilian duty. What is embarrassment in our time? Is it what it used to be? Oh, no. We have a man who just three weeks ago was riding along the Merritt Parkway in his new car with the top down. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day. Sitting next to him is his beautiful wife. He's on top of the scene. He's got it made. And they're whistling along the Merritt Parkway, millions of cars, all of them heading for the toll booth. <laughs> Little did he realize he was heading for the bull, over which he was about to go right over the horns. And the bull was going to win. And they're coming along. You know, it's one of those Sunday afternoons. And this, by the way, this man is a man that prides himself on his sensitivity. He reads the reporter. He reads the New Yorker, the village voice. He plays the guitar. He owns a complete collection of Joan Baez records. He's a very official citizen of our time. 
He has more buttons for angry reform organizations, believe me, than a collector. He belongs to all of them. I mean, he wants to see universal love come in the way Caro syrup came in. He believes in brotherhood the way you believe that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. I'm telling you the truth. So he's coming along, whistling along the Merritt Parkway, and way up ahead is that thing that says toll booth. And then the sign that says exact change lane to the left. Well, he is a man who is always ready. He swings to the left. And they're going in, you know, they're whistling along. One by one, the cars come up. And then there's about maybe four cars in line. And he's sitting there, the sun coming down. The milk of human kindness flowing through him on Sunday afternoon. There's cars behind him. He's got his dime ready. You know, on the merit there, they got, there's a dime there where the, where the bridge is. And he's coming along and he's got his dime. They're getting closer and closer to the toll booth. And you know, it's one of these with the, with the plastic basket, you know, with the rebounding board, you know, the little board. It's just, you bank it in. You know? It's fun, you know, it really is fun. I think a large number of guys want to get the exchange, the exact change booth just for that. Watch this hook shot, you know, thawing. You know, you know it, it gives, you, gives you a feeling of participation. <laughs> well, he's getting closer and closer. And up ahead is a little family group in a car. He is in a family group, too, you see. His kid is sitting in back, little realizing he's about to see Daddy finally lay the eternal egg. <laughs> and, and he's sitting there, you know, in the front seat of his car. It's a beautiful day. And ahead of him is this car. It's right out of the Pepsi-Cola ads, you know, the sociables. These two thin people, bronzed, and they've got a little bronzed kid. He goes to one of these little esoteric schools out here on the island, you know, Miss Brumley's or something, you know. And the little kid starts to holler he wants to throw the dime in. <laughs> Ahead, you know, in the next car. Well, my friend is watching this, and the little kid's got the dime, you know, and he says, Where, Daddy? Where? The daddy says, well, I'll throw it in here, in here. He says, where, where, daddy, daddy? And the mother says, oh, give him the dime back, will you? Let daddy throw it in. No, I want to Well, then there's a whole hassle, you know. Where, daddy? And they say, oh, I come on. And my friend is sitting back there. He says, oh, what kind of inconsiderate louts are these people? They're holding up thousands. Look at this. Come on up there, will you? Let's go. He hollers. You can hear him over 20 acres. And the guy is sweating in the front seat. Oh, shut up. Uh, come on, give me that dime, will you? And the kid, ah! And mother says, don't now, now let him throw it. Now, easy. And the kid finally takes the dime. Ding, doing, doing, ding, doing. And, and my friend is hollering, ah, oh, come on, it's about time, will you? Beep, beep, beep. Come on, let's go. Come on. Oh, boy, these Pepsi-Cola drinkers. Boy, probably a Republican. Yeah. Barry Goldwater, man. Boom, away goes the car. And now my friend's got his dime. He arrives right at the slot. It says, throw dime here. He goes, boing, 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 boing. The dime is hanging in midair like a pop foul coming down to Joe Pepitone. He makes a grab at it. It bounces twice under the car. He says, wait a minute. Hey, you got a dime, Madge? Already the first note is heard. Beep. He's got nothing but a half dollar and a penny. What is, 
and it says exact change, 10 cents. You get a dime. No dime in the car. Off about 25 feet away, lounging is a cop, just watching. The traffic jam now extends to Bridgeport. It happens instantly, you know, and he's sweating. He opens the door and starts crawling out in the grease. He's looking for the dime. And the cop says, how you doing? What are you looking for? It's my dime. Got a dime. That's your trouble, Mac. It's your bit. And he's down on his knees on the grease under the Chevy. The sound of the horns could be heard. And his wife said, yes, you would say that to those people. Everybody heard you. Now let's go. He's down there. The cop finally says, all right, all right, all of shut up, all of you. Pull it over to the side, Mac. And he drives to the side. The dimeless traveler in the exact change lane. His face is red. His guitar is unstrung in the back seat. And now he knows that the milk of human kindness sours oh so quickly in the hot sun on the Merritt Parkway. Stand up, Marty. There he is. There's the man that did it. Do you notice he is still embarrassed? Look at him. He lets his wife drive now. Speaking of embarrassment, we've been down at the limelight here in Greenwich Village. They're open until 3 o'clock in the morning where even the fist fights are fun. And this has been Old Chef. I'll be back next week at five minutes past ten. So give it to him, gang. Let him know you're here. You take that, Toledo. Take that, Trenton. This is where life is. These are the non-embarrassed people. This is WOR New York, your station for news. NROTC is Navy shorthand. It compresses a lot of meaning into one short phrase. Many high school seniors have heard the expression NROTC without knowing exactly what it means. NROTC is the Naval Reserve Officer Training Corps, and it's made up of patriotic young college men on selected campuses all over the country. As a member of your college NROTC unit, you'll have the distinction of being part of the Navy while you're earning your degree. You'll study naval science and gain working knowledge of the technology that plays such a vital role in today's defense effort. Upon graduation from college, you'll be commissioned a naval officer, fully qualified for a position of responsibility and respect as a key member of America's power for peace. Ask your Navy recruiter about NROTC. WOR AM at FM New York, your RKO General Station. If you are an auditor or about to be one, here's important news. Right now, you may qualify for a challenging and rewarding civilian career with an Army, Navy, or Air Force audit office, perhaps near your home. Starting pay for auditor positions ranges from seven dollars to $10,000 a year, and you advance with performance. Good opportunities are available for civilian and trainees, too. For details, write Board of Examiners, Navy Area Audit Office, 207 West 24th Street, New York, New York.
Good morning. And very good morning to everyone who's listening, and we uh, assure you of one thing. No one this evening is going to be arrested and thrown out. We're not going to have to call the police, and I don't expect there will be any hair pulling. But in spite of that, they can't pull much of my hair anyway. There's not much left. Um, in spite of that, I assume that we are going to have a very interesting program, a subject dear to my heart, and I'll introduce it by reading the dedication in a book which we'll be dealing with this morning. It says, Dedicated to my mother, the best teacher I've ever had, and to the home, still the greatest institution of learning. That uh, dedication comes from Mr. Howard X. Pollock, who has written a book called The Trouble with Our Schools. This morning we're going to be discussing the trouble with our schools, with the educational system as we find it here in the United States, the possibilities of doing something about it, and is the fault really with the schools, or with it, is it with the parents, with the students themselves? Is it, uh, well, whose fault is it? Is it your fault, or is it perhaps mine? Howard X. Pollock will um, discuss this matter with us in assistance with uh, Harold W. Kirster, social worker and former teacher, who's making his first visit to the W.O. microphone. Yes, I'm doing very well this morning. Microphones. Dr. Charles G. Hamilton is an Episcopal radio minister and veteran of 31 years of teaching in seven different colleges of the Deep South. And uh, you won't have any trouble distinguishing his voice from that of the rest of the panel. Believe me, he's got a real southern accent. Judy Katowitz is a uh, graduate student at Rutgers University and a novice teacher, as she so aptly describes herself, a novice teacher. I'm glad to hear that, Judy, because some people think the minute they've had two weeks of teaching, they're automatically teachers. I think there are people who are working at teaching, and there are teachers, and I'll um, tell you.